Welcome to the Option 3 Podcast. How's it going, everyone? My name is Rob Cordova, and I'm speaking to you from Tampa, Florida. And today I'm delivering the Option 3 January Review of Policy and Culture. Thank you for tuning in. Please hit the like and subscribe buttons when you get a chance. If you're on YouTube, you might also want to hit the bell to get notifications of when Option 3 posts new content. This cast will post on YouTube next Tuesday with segment links. Option 3 is an evolving new media-centrist think tank. It also has a blog and videos. To learn more, visit our website, option3project.org. That's the number three. This week, we'll be covering immigration, a non-orthodox view of the Hawaii false alarm, an essay titled, Hashtag Wage Slave, and as always, the content of the month. Alrighty, let's go ahead and get started. This last month was definitely about immigration. The shutdown and the State of the Union largely revolved around immigration. And it's something that I definitely think about a lot. It's a kind of a dry subject. It's not a dry subject for immigrants in any regard. But for Americans, it is kind of, it can be a dry subject if you need to look at the actual facts. I happen to be pretty sympathetic to immigrants, but but I'm also very sympathetic to the facts and the, the scientific research or the social scientific research. So. I basically, you know, there's two arguments made against unauthorized immigrants, namely that they cause crime and that they're an economic burden on society. And basically what I'm going to do here today is provide evidence to to demonstrate that these claims are both inaccurate. What I'm actually going to argue is that immigration should be considered a form of investment in our society, a form of investment in the United States of America. It's important to have a review of the facts because the hyperbole that Trump and others are sharing right now, um, they're absurd. They're, they're just bizarre, quite frankly. It's, uh, it's your, your good old-fashioned xenophobia, and it, it kind of harkens back to the essay that I, that I wrote or that I spoke in the last episode of the Option 3 podcast, which was called The, the Last White Man. And that was all about the role of intermarriage and the declining position of white, white Americans and white dominance. And you can listen to that, but, but basically, you know, I think there is a notion that white people are nervous about what was once their society, which is increasingly now a pluralistic society, which many people quote-unquote own. Now, in doing a, a review of the, the research on the social scientific research on immigrants, I'm actually going to say that, they, that there is some burden that they put on our society. But in the context of, of all of which they contribute across multiple generations, uh, I'd say that the net the, in, in the net analysis, 
they're a net benefit to society. So there's a couple things I want to say before I get started in discussing the research. And the first thing I want to say is that in a world where capital and the owners of capital can freely travel, labor ought to have that same experience. I think that's a just proposal, a just principle. The, the neoliberal tradition of free capital movement, which is a tenet of modern globalization, ought to extend to labor. I can't stress this point too much. That doesn't mean we, we wouldn't have aggressive vetting in the immigration process, but there should be, generally speaking, an openness to the, the movement of free labor if there is an openness to the movement of free capital. That is freedom. Freedom for capital, freedom for labor. But we don't really have that assumption, both culturally and in policy terms. There's generally a notion that labor shouldn't have that right, whereas capital should. And that's the point I want to make. Another point I want to make is that the, there's sort of a melting pot argument. There's a notion that we live in a melting pot society and we should just continue to, to have a melting pot society. And I don't know that that's a very smart argument. I think the argument should be based on... I mean, I'm sympathetic to the melting pot argument, but I, I ultimately think in the way that policy debates are structured now in the world, in, today in the modern world, I think you do have to have an economic basis to claim that immigrants benefit, benefit society. That's the only way you can really argue that they should be here. Um, otherwise, it gets a little harder. It gets more complicated. The argument gets more complicated. And um, But fortunately, they are a benefit to our society. So I don't think there is a big problem there. I just want to say that, you know, the we've always done it that way argument is a bit weak. The melting pot argument is a bit weak. For instance, Canada has very strict immigration laws, whereas the United States is not quite as strict. So that's that's at least that's my understanding of it. And the last minor point I want to make before I present some research is I want to say that there's a special relationship between the United States and Mexico, and it's a complicated relationship. Mexico has a people that lives both in the United States and in Mexico. I think the contribution of Mexican Mexican nationals and Mexican Americans to the Mexi to the American economy is profound. They have taken on jobs that Americans didn't want to take on. You know, for instance, in in um, in the picking of of, of of agricultural items, is very hard work. Sometimes it's very dangerous. It's exposure. There's exposure to pesticides. It's a, It's just a. It's the whole undertaking is significant. And there's also the component of raising American children, Mexican American again. Mexican national, Mexican immigrant, Mexican-American women have raised many American children. It's a significant contribution to our society. The point is, this has gone unobserved in many circles in the United States, and I think that's terribly wrong. I think there is a very special relationship between the United States and Mexico, and it's a special relationship that could, that should be codified in policy and law. So let me get into the research, the scientific research, the social scientific research on the question of immigrants. In an ideal world, what I would do is I'd co compare crime statistics among Americans versus immigrants. Then I would do the same thing with respect to Americans versus unauthorized immigrants. Then I'd repeat 
that analysis and I'd look at unauthorized Latino immigrants and then I'd repeat it for unauthorized Mexican, Guatemalan, Honduran, Salvadoranian immigrants. And then I would do it again for unauthorized Mexican immigrants because I feel like those are where those are where the discussion points are at. That's to put it in real clear terms, that's where the racism is coming out in people and the xenophobia. And then I would do the same analysis with respect to net economic benefit or cost of immigrants. I looked at this. This is 10 questions I posed and when I was writing my notes. This is how I would want to answer this question and do a further analysis. As it turns out, I can only examine about two of these questions. I couldn't disentangle the unauthorized component, nor could I disentangle the ethnic and racial component. So really what I've, what I've succeeded in finding research on is whether or not immigrants cause crime and whether or not immigrants are a net economic benefit or cost on the United States of America. So I found a journal article from the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicines titled The Economic and Fiscal Consequences of Immigration. And it provided a very interesting picture very what I thought was the most accurate picture I've seen in, in a while. So first, I want to talk a little bit about the state of immigration. So here are some basic statistics about immigration right now. The number of immigrants has increased 70% since 1995. And that's from about 25 million, or 9% of the population in 1995, to about 42 million or 13% of the U.S. population in 2014. The number of unauthorized immigrants has roughly increased 100% from about 6 million in 1995 to about 11 million in 2014. There was a fall-off in annual flows due to the economic crisis in 2007 and 2008. Basically, the research is organized in such a way that you look at the economic impacts and the fiscal impacts. So here it is. Immigrant employment generally does not impact non-immigrant employment. So there you have it. Boom. Now here is one interesting point. Immigrant employment does reduce so-called native teen work hours. So immigrants, when they come to the United States, they do have an impact on teenagers and Americans, American teenagers' employment in terms of the hours worked, not in terms of their employment rate, which was an interesting point that this journal article made, but simply the hours that they have available to work. So it does impact them on some level. Another point that the, that the article makes is recent immigrants reduce prior immigrant employment so that there is some substitution going on between generations of immigrants. So the recent, more recent immigrants probably are willing to work at a cheaper pay, cheaper wage than the earlier immigrants have gotten accustomed to. In any case, now listen to this. Skilled immigrants raise non-immigrant wages and employment. This is due to innovation and symbiosis. So basically, there is sort of a network effect. In other words, skilled immigrants complement non-immigrant workers. And that's why together their wages and their employment increase. It's a very interesting point. Here's another interesting point. High-skilled immigrants negatively impact non-immigrant wages and productivity. 
So that's your first, except for the teen hours, the loss of teen work hours, that's the first sort of indication that there is something to be said on the sort of Trump, xenophobic or whatever, conservative, all that side of it. There's that side of the perspective on immigrants. There is some truth to what these arguments say, that immigrants are a draw on our society. Now, as I'm going to say later in the final analysis, I think immigrants are very clearly a benefit to our society, very clearly. But I, but that's a good. It's an interesting point there that high-skilled immigrants negatively impact non-immigrant wages and productivity. Here's some more findings: immigrant labor reduces the price of some goods and services. Immigrants are also a new source of demand in key markets such as housing. Immigrants help stabilize labor markets that exhibit strong labor demand. Immigrants increase per capita patenting and econo- and thus economic growth. So. Again, all these are these are all generally positive impacts. Now, on the fiscal front, it's a little it's a little bit more complicated. The article talks about some fiscal numbers for 2011 to 2013. First generation immigrants and their dependents cost about 57 billion dollars annually for state, local and federal government. This is due to lower incomes, which results in lower tax revenue and also higher education costs due to larger families. But then, second-generation immigrants benefit the U.S. economy $31 billion annually. And third-generation immigrants benefit the U.S. economy by about $224 billion annually. So if you round out the numbers and you look at first-generation immigrants, second-generation immigrants, and third-generation immigrants, there is a net economic benefit annually of $297 billion. And just to be clear, that's a fiscal benefit. So I just want to make the point that it's not a completely simple picture. It's not just like immigrants come here and then they all of a sudden they're a benefit to our society. The first generation does produce a cost of $57.4 billion annually. But if you anal- if you aggregate the generations, which you naturally would, I think, because after a certain point of time, it's just a flow. It's just three flows going into the U- U.S. economy. It becomes a 200, you know, virtually a $200 billion benefit that the immigrants are providing to the U.S. economy. Last point, as immigrant education rises, which is what's happening. More and more immigrants are being, they're, they're an increasingly educated group of people. The net and total effect is increasingly positive of their presence in the United States of America. So what does this all mean? For me personally, it means that immigrants and immigration can be viewed as a very inexpensive investment in our economy. Or perhaps a better way to say it is there is a small cost initially of a first first generation effect, but there is a benefit of the second and third generations. And I know that sounds perhaps a little clinical because these are human beings. They should not be considered an investment, but it's a necessary perspective to share because of all the haters that are out there, the xenophobes that don't really know what they're talking about. So let me jump into crime. So that's, that, that's, 
the economic and fiscal component. That's the net economic cost or benefit of immigrants. So let's talk a little bit about crime. I wasn't able to find a definitive source of research on crime, but I did read a couple different pieces. Some things I read, I felt were completely, they were a joke. You know, some people, you know, analyses done by Fox News, analyses done by uh, smaller institutes that I felt just didn't cut the mustard. So I didn't read those, or I didn't, I didn't note them in this, uh, in the, I'm not going to note them at this time. I did read a piece by Aaron Shafflin of the Department of Criminology at the University of Pennsylvania. I did read a couple pieces by Alex Noraste. I definitely think I'm mispronouncing his name. But what I thought was very interesting is that he works for the Cato Institute, which is, generally speaking, a conservative organization, or maybe not a conservative organization, but an organization that's sympathetic to non-governmental solutions to, to policy and market-oriented solutions. And then I also read a review of several economists' work on theconversation.com, which is an interesting website that I'd never heard of until now. It aggregated research from UC Irvine, the College of William and Mary, the University of Alabama, and the University of Buffalo. And to make a long story endless, uh, just kidding, to make a long story short, the consensus is that immigrants do not cause crime. They all said that. I was shocked, actually. I was really surprised by the, the commentator from the Cato Institute. He clearly said it. And he said, if anything, the estimates of immigrant crime are actually overstated because of the way in which the, the crime statistics are reported. And I'm not going to delve into that subject just now. In general, the assessment on, from these people is, if anything... Immigrants reduce crime, and the reason they reduce crime is because they increase economic activity, and that's consistent with the National Academies of Sciences article that I, be, that I addressed more thoroughly above. I would consider them an investment in our economy, plain and simple, possibly a, a cultural investment in the safety of our, of our communities, so... It's a fucked up situation. I don't know what to say. And the facts are definitely not being considered very carefully in the debate. If you feel that I have misrepresented the potential research or that I perhaps simplified the research, please get in touch. No problem. Uh, you can go to the website and find uh, our email. It's option three, project at gmail.com. I didn't, I wouldn't, I wasn't able to find a definitive source on crime, but I do think I found a definitive source on the economic and fiscal impacts of immigrants. So, so that's that. So my sister was in Hawaii when the supposed false alarm took place. 
and she posted on Facebook how scary it was to be in this situation, getting this text saying, you know, find cover. And I guess she was running. Hope she doesn't mind me sharing the story. It's an interesting story. She was on a run, and her family was, you know, like 20 or 5 minutes away from her because she was running. So she gets a text saying, run for cover, or find cover, find shelter. And here she is away from her family, unable to help out. So it was a very scary situation. And we all know the mainstream story, which is that they retracted the false alarm, supposedly 38 minutes later. But perhaps the real story is more serious. According to a second-person testimony, which I came across on YouTube, and uh, something I don't dismiss, I take first-person testimony and second-person testimony, I take all testimony very seriously. And I look at it, and I examine it for what it is. A group of nine tour guides and 13 tourists witnessed some type of explosion in the sky. And they were supposedly 100 miles southeast of Maui on that day. Supposedly, additional people confirmed they saw or felt a blast on the southeast side of Maui. One of the problems I found with this uh, YouTube piece, this YouTube video, is that the observation is made that the tourist boat is 100 miles southeast of Maui at 8 a.m. And that seemed like a long distance. It doesn't seem impossible, but it does seem like... I don't know much about boat travel, but it seemed like it would take a long time. Maybe if they left at 6 a.m. they could get there. I don't really know, but I do want to note that. And I'm going to provide links in both the SoundCloud and the YouTube to this video that I found, also to the Phi Beta Iota website, which is Robert David Steele's website. That's where I actually found this story, and the, his, it has a whole analysis there. It's kind of a long, complicated analysis, and I don't, I don't really like the way that it's presented. I like the, I like Robert David Steele. He's an impressive guy. He's trying to do a lot of very good work. Um, he's an interesting person, a former CIA case manager, former Marine. He did a lot of things in his career, and now he's trying to lead a progressive movement to change this country. He's an open, he's an advocate for open source intelligence and open source, what he calls open source everything, which is basically using information that you would readily find on the internet and elsewhere to solve problems. And uh, he talks about open, open source decision support. In any case, he's the reason I came across this story. So, again, there was a group of tourists who saw this explosion in the sky around 8 a.m. the day that this false alarm took place. And according to the same person in this YouTube, and again, I will put the YouTube in my notes, he goes by the name of Marfugal Watutu News. And if you look in the comments, there is at least one comment I found that said that uh, this story was covered by KHON2 in Maui and, and throughout the islands, I guess. I guess that's a, a news channel throughout the islands. And they covered the story initially that, that, that there was an explosion in the sky. And then, you know, there was also this another supposed false alarm in Japan that was reported by the New York Times. 
uh, and other news outlets. So some people are calling this a reverse false flag. So, so obviously, you know, I don't really want Option 3 to be known as a conspiracy theorist website, but whatever. I dabble in the subject, as I've said before. And I take it seriously. I take conspiracy theories very seriously. And I examine them. And uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think smart people do that. I think most people who are smart do that, and then they shut their mouth. (laughs) Um, But things are changing. Uh, I think we live in a time where we need radical honesty. We need to grow up. We need to take things for what they really are and stop hiding. So in any case, this is, a false flag is basically an event that is orchestrated to create a reaction in the public. Your classic false flag event is where you attack yourself to make it look like you are being attacked. A nation attacks itself to make it seem as though it's being attacked in order to justify some set of actions or policies. A reverse false flag is where you have an event that actually does happen and then you cover it up or you alter its nature. And people are saying, for instance, Robert David Steele, who also goes by the name of Robert David Steele Vivas, he's saying that the Hawaii false alarm was a reverse false flag in that there was actually a missile in the sky, that the missile was taken down. He's saying that, he's saying that this is, he believes this to be more than 50% likely, that the missile was taken down by some type of either space technology or ground, ground-to-air defense system some people, and I don't think Robert David Steele believes this, some people are actually saying that it could have been aliens that dealt with this issue. I'm not going there. It's very interesting, but I, and I want to share that, but we're not going there. Not right now. And I'm also going to leave the political economy of this event unaddressed because it has to do with a lot of complicated issues. Maybe it has to do with the deep state's conflict with Trump, which is an interesting subject. It could be, it has to do with the weakening position of the petrodollar and its relationship to buying oil with yuan, with Chinese currency. It has to do with a lot of stuff. And I'm going to leave that unaddressed because I want to make a couple points about this. Steele and others are arguing that the alert has a five-stage fail-safe procedure. So there isn't a situation where you just accidentally hit the alert, or that there is some drop-down menu that you accidentally click. That situation doesn't exist. In fact, the alarm supposedly has a two-person, two two-key, just like you have with a nuclear, nuclear arming, when you arm a nuclear bomb, a, a nuclear missile, you have the eight feet apart, Two people have to turn the key. It's that type of situation. So there's fail-safe mechanisms, and there's five stages to the fail-safe mechanism for this alert system. So the notion that it's just some drop-down menu that some guy clicked or he put his elbow on it, that argument, according to the people who are disputing it, is bullshit. The other thing I want to note is that if you look at this YouTube piece, 
you see that there's a lot of commenters who are saying that it was probably they're they're very sympathetic to this testimony and they're saying that they don't believe it and i think that's a significant thing i think people should take note of that i haven't i'm not doing a full piece on sort of mainstream news but mainstream news is problematic at best and i don't want to call i don't want to talk about fake news because it's a very complicated subject there's fake news there's mainstream news there's conventional news there's all it's it's a very rich subject that deserves attention at a later time in fact i might put that very i might address that next month it's so important um because i do think there is fake news but there's also alternative news and there are some good sources for alternative news and there's there's there is a reason why mainstream news is important and why there are different sources of mainstream news that are important and they have to be put in their proper place. For instance, I watch CNN, and it does a decent job of covering the mainstream news. Fox News does not. MSNBC does not. Al Jazeera was a good source of news at one time. Uh, that's what I think. In any case, I digress. So I wanted people to know about this. It's an interesting subject. The potential idea that Hawaii was a reverse false flag that there was a missile, that it was knocked out of the sky. So it's an important subject. You should know about it. As always, I, can co I cover conspiratorial issues as best I can, as rationally and as reasonably I can.